Welcome back to the David Watson podcast. Today's exciting guest is William J. Dye, who has written nine books, I think he said. But one of the things we got into today is his latest book. And it pours the tension on purpose. It's because it's about, in some way, the evil that is found in good people and the good that can be found in evil people. And we had a nice discussion about assassins. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, William. It's nice to meet you. And how are you? I'm doing great. I hope you are. And I hope it's beautiful in England today. It's not unsurprisingly, it's raining, which uh, oh. <laughs> is, is, is what we would expect, to be fair. Um, just quickly, because we were having a brief chat before um, I, we started the, the, the recording. Um, how is it that you know Salisbury? Well, my wife, Vez, did there when she was in an American field service program a long time ago in the 60s. And then when we've been to England many times, uh, she made sure and took me there. And so that's the main reason. Yeah. Because it was one of the things the um, your people sent me through about is to just you know ask a little bit because you've, you've done a fair bit about around England and around the world, but have an interest in, in these areas. Absolutely. Yeah, I've spoken at Oxford and Cambridge and then up in Keswick, which is up in the Lake District. I know. Beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And other places, uh, we always stayed in, our friends lived in St. Albans, uh, suburb of London there. Yeah, just and north of Watford. That's right. And, of course, we've been all over Scotland as well, you know. So, yeah, we just love, uh, we're Anglophiles. Yeah, we've always enjoyed it. <laughs> Lots good. of Americans are, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, we're lucky. We're lucky in the UK. We have a good variety of landscapes and a good, very, very rich history. Absolutely. And we're kind of lucky because um, we've still got our history in terms of the um, architecture is still an integral part of our country. So it's there in your face, whether you want to see it or not. And architecture tells you a lot. It actually tells a story of what people were thinking at different periods of time. And I, I have a whole lecture on the history of worship as seen through art and architecture. And it goes all the way from the temple and the synagogue to today and lots of different. And it's a, it's a contrast between holy place and holy people theology. Uh, depending on what kind of architecture it is. So the architecture shapes the way people think and the way people feel, and the way people feel then shapes the architecture. So, Well, because you said, you know, you, you visited uh, Salisbury Cathedral. Do you know how Salisbury Cathedral came about? I don't remember all the history, but I'm fascinated if you will tell me. So just, just outside of the city of Salisbury is a, a place called Old Sound, which effectively means Old Salisbury. And it's a hill fort, and it's uh, and back in the day, it was an incredibly important hill fort by people like Henry VIII, etc., like that. And it was around for for years and years, but around about eleven around the eleven hundreds. I'm saying the eleven hundreds because Salisbury was built in twelve hundred and something, um, mm. and it took about a hundred years to complete, I think. But around about the eleven hundreds, there was a cathedral in the 
fort, the military fort of Old Serum. And <laughs> the, the bishops and the military leaders kept falling out. And they would arrest, you know, the, the canons. You know what I mean? They kept arresting the, um, the clergy. Just, just literally, as somebody once described it, for shits and giggles. They'd just do it to, 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 for fun. Just so for they, the fun they, of it. Yeah, so the Bishop of Salisbury had enough, and they put a cathedral somewhere else. It was literally oh. falling out, created Salisbury wow. Cathedral. Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. I have to go back and read up more on that, find out a little and more about it. It's the connection to the hill fort, which is why Salisbury Cathedral has one of the original signed Magna Cars. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, because it was an important, it was still an integral part of the, the military structure at the time. Absolutely. Wow, thank you for sharing that with no, me. No, you're, you're welcome, you're welcome. I, I, I have to be honest, I love to be able to tell a little bit about Salisbury because it's um, one of the things that does get lost with the history of, of England and well, the, of Great Britain is we've lost why these cities came about. People don't always understand how important they were. So, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm so, glad I gave you that opportunity to yeah, share that. I know. I appreciate it. It's, it's nice to kind of have that thing in common from across the water. Um, That's right. So, well, the reason you and I are actually talking is your latest book. So just give everybody a bit of a lowdown on, on that book. Yes. Well, you, you mentioned the Magna Carta and... I'm into old manuscripts. I always have been. I'm a Greek scholar. And uh, this is a novel called Assassin's Manuscript. Assassin's with apostrophe S at the end, singular. And it's about a former CIA assassin who becomes clergy and then gets pulled back into his old world of, of uh, espionage and murder. And he has to crack a code in an ancient manuscript to prevent an international disaster, trying to figure out what a terrorist plot is. In the meantime, the old Codex Sinaiticus, which is the oldest version of the Bible, is stolen from the British Museum in London. Uh, in fact, that's right at the beginning of the novel. And it's sort of life imitating art, if you think about it, because of the stories in The Guardian and The Economist about the artifacts recently being stolen from the British Museum. And here's a novel that starts with that. So uh, that's just a very uh, quick summary. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's interesting because I often wonder with our fascination with history and there are these these manuscripts, the arts, the the things that people used to make that are really really intricate. And when when I think of some of the, do you know those types of boxes? You're know, like puzzle boxes that people used to keep their their valuables yeah. in. And there's lots of buildings in the UK, old buildings that have what are called murder holes, where people used to hide because mm. of the, the reparations and stuff. But I sometimes wonder how much we want it to be a mystery and this kind of hidden underworld or hidden secret world and how much of it was just a necessity at the time and because nobody could read or write they just expressed things with some exaggeration and we've just allowed our romance in our mind to to, to make it more than what it is that's an interesting point i i think it's a bit of both i think we are fascinated with mystery as human beings. We're curious 
and we like to figure things out. Mm. Uh, my wife does jigsaw puzzles, and she refuses to look at the cover of the box to see what it's supposed to look like and, and to work on it on her own. And uh, I, I think when you write a novel like the one I wrote, I wanted little hints of what was coming, but they're very subtle. You, you barely see them. And you can't realize what they are until you've read further and you begin to say, oh, I remember that and whatever. And so people like to discover. The truth is every reader imagines a book in his or her own mind. Yes. You know, that, that's how books uh, come together for for readers. And and, and so they love the, the thrill of the of the chase to figure out what's going on as they're on the journey, on the pathway that you give them as the author. Because I've often wondered if that's why when you see books that have been um, put into film, I've often wondered if that's why when people say, oh, no, they've got the book completely wrong. And it's just like, no, no, no. So it's, you read a book from your point of view in your mind. Yes. And the director's done exactly the same, but put but put that image on the screen for you, and it's just yes. a, a, an opposing view to what you saw the how you recalled the book. Absolutely. Well, I've often said to professors when they are lecturing, there may be fifty in their lecture hall, and they think they're giving one lecture, but there are actually fifty different lectures going on at that moment because everyone is hearing it from his or her own filter. Uh, I, I love the description. One uh, one person person told me that when you when you speak to a large group of people, it's like pitching a bucket of water over a room full of long necked bottles. Not much is caught. And yeah. so, what happens when we when each one of us reads a book is we read it from our own filter, and then when it gets put into a movie, you go, "Wait a minute, I don't remember that." And, there's another difference when I, I've actually written screenplays and I even have a screenplay on, on this novel, but uh, you can't put everything in a movie that's in a book. Uh, that's why there are so many uh, Netflix series these days. In fact, this novel, Assassin's Manuscript, would be better as a limited series than as a movie. Yeah. Well, it's too big and complex for that. There's a line that I read that was sent over to me and it said a good in a good in every evil person and there is evil in every good person and i thought about that before um when i was reading what was sent through to me and the good in every real per evil person is darth vader because at the end he sends his son saves his son in the original film and right. the evil the evil in every good person is john wick who's an assassin there you go, there you go. That's a great, uh, great description, Dave. I appreciate that. Uh, that is what's going on in this novel, Assassin's Manuscript, because it, even though this is a Dan Brown meets Daniel Silva thriller, yeah, it's both, it's both James Bond and Indiana Jones. You know, Jack Ryan and yeah. Name of the Rose. It's it's those two combined. Even though it has a Tom Clancy feel to it because of the international espionage, this is different from those books because in those books, there are good guys and bad guys. And the good guys are often Americans and bad guys are often or, or Brits and the bad guys are whoever else. Well, I w didn't want that. 
in my novel, Assassin's Manuscript, everyone is broken and flawed. Yeah. Everyone is nuanced. And that's why you see that play out as you get to the end of the novel. So taking that on board, you, you've done a lot. <laughs> and one of the things, could you explain to me what the U.S. Senate guest chaplain is? Yeah, so there is a chaplain of the U.S. Senate and one of the House of Representatives. Uh, that's an appointed position. And the position involves coming in and offering a prayer at the beginning of the U.S. Senate. Uh, and then the, Lloyd Ogilvie actually made quite a bit out of it with uh, having Bible studies with staffers, you know, Senate staffers and such. But uh, and Barry Black's doing a lot, the, the one who is the U.S. Ch Senate chaplain now. But uh, I had been invited to be guest chaplain for a day. And uh, that was back when the Columbia shuttle shattered and scattered across the state of Texas. So my prayer that day related to that. But that that's pretty much what the job is. It's it's just an honorary position. Yeah, because that, that just the reason that pops into my head was because you said about how all of the characters you knew in the book have flaws, but they also some of them have good intentions, some of them have bad intentions, and that's often how I perceive politicians. They're not always bad. Yeah, yeah. and and the Senate, and I'm wondering because if, as your role as a chaplain and stuff like that. You're in a position where people will confess things to you, but your right. your faith requires you to see the good. That's a good good point. Actually, actually, it's an excellent point. Uh, that's true of any clergy in any yeah. any position uh, that you you want to see the good in people. I, I think it's a problem in our world today. It's in our country and probably there as well that we see certain people as all bad there's just yeah. nothing good uh and then uh, you know i mean when i was and, and i think what we all have i lecture on the brain at medical schools and medical conferences and have been since 2000 and and the amygdala is the part of the brain for fear fight flight yeah and i i think what we all have as human beings is overactive amygdalas we are reacting way too quickly to certain things people say. For example, when I was uh, at Oxford lecturing and speaking and there for a while, uh, I remembered it was during the Iraq war. And uh, at breakfast, dinner was a sumptuous affair, like seen from Chariots of Fire or Harry Potter, you know, put on our gowns and came in and marched yeah. in and, you know, Benedictum, Benedictus, the ancient prayer. And it was a wonderful meal and all that. But at breakfast one morning, and the food is always good at Oxford. It's inter interesting. It's, they have good chefs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, someone said Bush, and the whole room erupted. Oh, Bush, you know. And that, that, in other words, and this is not a political comment. It's just you can do this about all in any yeah, kind of politician. Can, yeah. It is just that that it was just all bad. Yeah. And I think that's a mistake. And I yeah. think if we can ever solve the problem of overactive 
amygdalas, you know, which causes wars, causes breaks up in marriages, causes problems at work. You know, if I could figure out how to solve the problem of overactive amygdalas, you know, I could win the Nobel Peace Prize, you know. Uh, yeah. and, and it's because we just see everybody, certain people as bad. And that's not a that's not a healthy thing. No, no, it's not. But that that's the wonderful thing about when you get to write, isn't it? Because you can put the good in the evil person and you can put the evil in the good person and you can show and get somebody on board with, oh, actually, that bad guy's right. Well, that good mm -hmm. guy's not too nice, is he? Right. So, yes, in fact, I wanted, I'm easily bored myself, all right? So I wanted something that would catch people's attention from the first line and keep them going. And the, all the reviewers are saying that about this Assassin's Manuscript, which I've written. But I wanted it to be more than just a beach read. Uh, I wanted to have some literary depth. And so my main character, Adam Hunter, uh, the word Ad, the name Adam comes from Hebrew, which means humankind, hunter, he's in search of peace. So Adam represents a violent humanity out of control, right? Yeah. The character, Adam Hunter, a former CIA assassin. The fa main female character, Rennie Ellis, Rennie, R-E-N-I-E, being short for Irene, which in Greek means peace. And she's the only one who can complete his mythic story. And it becomes this very unlikely romance because she gets interested to him, in him when he moves down to where she lives, uh, not knowing that he had killed her fiancé by accident. And okay. it's awkward. It's awkward for him. And then she's with him around the Middle East and all over Rome and every place. And all the way through, the reader is thinking, is she going to find out? And what's she going to do as she's falling in love with this guy who killed her fiancé? So, but she represents the piece that can complete humanity's mythic story. But the Bedouin is also a key character in the sense that he's the Darth Vader. So yeah. if you use, if you in, in Assassin's Manuscript, if you use... Uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero a Thousand Faces or Christopher Vogler's The Writer's Journey, uh, all, all the background for the Star Wars movies. You've got main character, ordinary, well, leaves ordinary world to go to extraordinary world. He meets with, with a, um, a mentor, Yoda. And in my case, it's Stump Stevens, the former yeah. CIA director. And he has to deal with his shadow self, which is Darth Vader. In my case, it's the Bedouin. So there is this deeper literary, there's this literary depth going on uh, in a really fast-paced espionage novel. And, you know, that's, it took me a while. Well, it took me yeah. 30 years to get this yeah. done. Wow. <laughs> 30 years. <laughs> but, but that, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that's... You mentioned about it being that there's a, a manuscript and you've talked about screenwriting or publicly you've talked about screenwriting. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is I seen somewhere that you said how, that learning when you've talked about screenwriting and when you were learning to screenwrite and the people you learned from that it helped you streamline stories and create hooks 
Can you explain what the nuances of that are to people? Sure. So the first version of Assassin's Manuscript back almost 30 years ago was 740 pages. <laughs> and, yeah. and I mean, we're talking enormous manuscript. Yeah. And I brought it into a literary agent in Dallas, Texas, where I lived at the time. And I dropped it on his desk. He said, you nearly broke my desk with that thing. Go take 200 pages out and then I'll look at it. I mean, he was just telling me to kill my own babies, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. when And now I have a PhD and you learn how to edit when you write a PhD and you learn how to research. And so that was a long time ago. And I had written eight other nonfiction books, uh, one a set of lectures at Princeton, two have been translated into Korean. So I'm used to editing, but fiction is so different from nonfiction. And I had to learn how to do it. So anyway, I was trying to figure out how am I going to take 200 pages out of a 740 page book? And another author friend said, learn how to write screenwriting, the screenplays. And when you learn screenwriting, it will help you tighten your story. So sure enough, it did. And, uh, and to my great surprise, I won the Telluride Indie Fest screenwriting contest with a screenplay on a totally different story, a romantic comedy that has no violence in it at all. Uh, but it did help me tighten um, Assassin's Manuscript. And uh, So what would you say people overdo? What did you, what did you ask? What, I didn't hear it. How, how would you... So, so for people that are listening to this, what would you say you people overdo, do too much of? Uh, so you ask about what, how do people overdo when they write? Well, they do it all the time. Way too much description. Uh, when I read some books, I just find myself skimming through sections to get to the action and the dialogue. <clears throat> and then sometimes there's too much action. I mean, or the just action is 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 described in a heavy-handed way if, if that makes sense uh way too much you can you can be much leaner and cleaner in the way you do it and then dialogue is often way over described uh over over printed and uh, let me give you an example i was starting to say uh, that the the bedouin is at saint catherine's monastery which is the oldest monastery in the world basically justinian the emperor justinian built it in the sixth century it's a six-story fortress and it's been a continuously religious community the monk is there at saint catherine's monastery by the way that's where the codex sinaiticus was first discovered by constantine von tischendorf a real archaeologist from germany uh, who then stole it from them, took it to the Russia, and then it ended up at the British Museum because the Bolsheviks stole it to the British Museum. And in a crowdsourcing, you know, people gave their shillings and pence, and they um, uh, bought it for 100,000 pounds. Anyway, uh, here I'm overdoing even in answering your question. Sorry. So the, so the Bedouin has the monk create another manuscript that my main character is going to have to deliver to the Vatican, and uh, he looks at it, and then he gets on the phone to call somebody, and the person he's calling is this CIA rogue character named Conrad Doherty. But in the meantime, you see it's described that he has the monk killed right there. One of his henchmen snaps his neck, and then he gets on the phone. And in my earlier version of the novel, I had the Bedouins say, 
all right, I have the manuscript, the monk has been killed, now you need to make sure it's delivered to Adam Hunter so he can take it to the Vatican. I had written all of that. And the person coaching me said, no, that's not what he would say. He would get on the cell phone and he would say, it's done. That's all he would say. And, and in a movie particularly, you can see everything that's happened. So you don't have to have him describe it all. So those are parts of it. Now, I often say in other conversations when I speak to book clubs and such, it, it is the fact that good writing, a great story, a great novel, a great poem, a great screenplay, a great play is not written. It's rewritten. Yeah. In other words, editing, editing, editing. Uh, Stephen King has a wonderful line, to write is human, to edit is divine. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And you've got to have a good editor who's going to help you trim and tighten. Stephen so that's what I did. Stephen King did an excellent book on how to write. I had it. I used to have it. I yes. don't know if I still do. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a book called On Writing. It's a yeah. wonderful book. Yeah, uh, I don't I've, read a lot of Stephen King, but but this is a great book on writing. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't read. I don't think I've ever read any Stephen King. Obviously, I've seen a lot of his films, but I read his book on how to write. Um, yes, and it, incredibly informative and useful. One of the few that it I is. found very useful. But, I agree. And I, I just want to backtrack slightly. Explain to people what the Codex is. Yeah. So the Codex Sinaiticus. Well, what it, you want to know just what a codex is. Simply. Well, the one the one we're referring to, which is the one, the one in the novel. Okay. Codex Sinaiticus is the oldest version of the Bible and the most reliable. And, you know, there are thousands of manuscripts, right, uh, that got crunched together that became the Bible, right? But when Constantine Fontischendorf discovered the Codex Sinaiticus, in 1859 on his third trip to St. Catherine's Monastery. None of this is in the novel, just described a little yeah. bit. But So this is not historical fiction. Uh, but he found it and realized uh, scales fell from his eyes. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is the most incredible discovery. And uh, so it's the one that's referred to often when there are conflicts in translations. And and it becomes, you know, it becomes the rule, the model by which we then say, okay, this is what is really correct. Uh, the Hebrew letter Aleph is used in the, the critical apparatus at the bottom of Greek New Testaments to describe the Codex Sinaiticus. Um, and I had a problem when I wanted to have it stolen from the British Museum because... I mean, it's sort of funny to say it that way. In my novel, Assassin's Manuscript. Yeah. It's not to clarify literally, for any legal sources listening. Yeah, not not literally steal it. Uh, that I had written most of the novel up to about 1998. And then they moved the Codex Sinaiticus from the British Museum to the British Library in 1998. And now what am I going to do? Because... I think it would be easier to steal something from the British Museum than it would from the British Library. Now, people there may, you know, argue about that one way or the other, but I think the security in the British Library is just amazing. 
So I would sorry, I, I would say it would depend on how you intended to steal it. Right, right. Uh, well, you'll have to see what I did with the with the uh, Codex Sinaiticus in the novel Assassin's Manuscript to see how it's done there. But uh, I got to know the gallery warders at the British Museum, and and I got to find out a little bit about how all the security system works yeah. and this and that. And so, uh, but I had a problem. Now am I going to have to have it stolen from the British Museum back in 1998 and then the novel starts later? I don't like those where it goes different time periods. But then I got my solution, which is the British Library periodically moves artifacts back to the British Museum on display for a few months every once in a while and i thought that's when i can have it stolen <laughs> that's a scene that writes itself for you doesn't it it, it creates oh. its own solution oh it's i had and I, my character there the gallery warder nigel rupert is was just such a fun character uh, and and uh and he he gets paid to help conrad doherty uh steal yeah. it there early on and that that is just such a fun chapter to write uh it's called sleight of hand i used titles for my chapters instead of numbers there are 77 chapters that's yeah, boring yeah. you know it is, it so is, it is so titles and you know titles are more fun because you want them to be enticing and inviting and tell a little bit but not tell too much well you can put a hook in a title can't you you can absolutely you, can, you can't tease with a number Absolutely. And you mentioned the hooks uh, in relationship to the screenwriting. I like short chapters. So this book has very short chapters and a hook at the end of each chapter. Yes. So you you have to keep going. And I've had a lot of people uh, email me and say, you kept me up half the night. I couldn't put this thing down. So anyway, that's good. I wanted no, to that, do that. That yeah. is good because you, you said something earlier and I, I'm very similar. I can get bored very quickly. So so if I open a book and it's like, oh, it's going to take me 40 minutes to read this chapter, there's a good chance I won't get through it. But well, I could spend, if it's got several chapters that I can read in an hour and a half, there's a good chance I'll read it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, my wife, my wife's name is Jane, and J Jane and I often read, you know, we're both in our mid-70s, and we read at night before we go to sleep. And if I'm reading a book that's got a, I'm just like, how long is this chapter? <laughs> you know, I want to go to sleep. And it's like, so, yeah, it's anyway. too much. Um, I wanted to ask you about the assassins that you met, which, you know, I'd oh. imagine is a very popular topic. But I wanted to clarify some things because when it comes to assassins and people will, you know, if, if you just, you know, we were talking earlier about if you're writing something down in a book, people will see it and interpret it their own way. So if I say just wrote the word assassin to 10 different people, they'll come up with 10 different versions of an assassin. Mm. It, it's, it's such a, an open word that allows lots of detail. And before you know it, one would have, Somebody, you know, maybe he's a retired English teacher who has a hidden background from World War Two. Someone will have, have a ninja from <laughs> just from the word right. assassin. And, right. and so, so what I wanted to know when you met these assassins, did any of them meet 
like the myth behind an assassin? And what were the realities that you discovered? Yeah, that's a good, that's an excellent question, Dave. Um, there, there were five of them. I should say four and the son of an assassin that I met. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I'm people say, how in the world did you meet assassins? Like, I mean, I didn't put out an ad, you know, I want to meet assassins. <laughs> I, I just ran into these people. And one of them, I was lecturing at a college and my wife says, don't say the name of the college. OK, so I was lecturing at a college and uh, I had finished the lecture and was doing Q&A. And they one said, we know you've written all these other nonfiction books. What are you working on now? And I said, well, I'm actually working on a novel. Oh, what's it about? And I told him. So then as I was wrapping up, getting ready to go to the next thing, uh, this young man came up to me and he said, I'm a philosophy professor here. And uh, that's what my dad used to do uh, for the government. But he didn't tell me until he was on his deathbed that he so is used that the to go evil in every good person. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so as this again, is a son talking about his dad, isn't it? He just it knows is. his dad is a good person. Yeah. And he, he said he said uh, you would never have guessed it. Yeah. Uh, he was a regular Little League dad in the neighborhood. You know, he was he helped coach baseball, you know, and and he, he was he could be like your next door neighbor, you know, scary. And fool. so I got him to tell me what he was like. And I got lots of good insight there. Another one was a taxi driver in Louisville, Kentucky. And I had come in for a board meeting there and I was picked up at midnight and he had a big beard and he took me to the Brown Hotel downtown Louisville and uh, so, you know, I'm an extrovert. I, I, I walk into restaurants and around to tables and I interview people on whether they like what they're eating, you know, and my family just backs away from me. It's like, we don't know him. It's called outcomes assessment. I don't want to just look at a menu. I want to yeah. hear, is this good? You know? And so I, I love talking to taxi drivers and, and the London taxi drivers who are, oh, I've used them in my brain lecturing because they know every road. Yeah, yeah the knowledge. They have uh, the most highly developed right hippocampus of any people in the world because of their memory for visual. Well, yeah, because they have anyway, to pass the knowledge, don't they? So That's a huge test. Four questions and they have to be able to yeah. pass them all. And yeah. Anyway, so I like talking to taxi drivers. So I ask him, uh, you, you know, where are you from? New York, you know, cup of coffee, you know, had a heavy yeah, accent. Yeah, yeah. I, how did you get to Louisville, Kentucky? Came here after Nam, And I go, oh, OK, what'd you do in Nam? I was in the Phoenix Project. And I go, oh, well, because I had done so much research, I knew that was assassins. So yeah. I said, have you got to pick anybody else up tonight? No. I said, if I cross your palm with a hundred dollar bill, can we have a drink and you can tell me stories? Absolutely. Let's do it. So this is how I found out about that, how this. So I just that is an opening scene to a film. A oh. guy, the, no, a guy in the back of a taxi saying, "If I give you a hundred dollar bill, can I? Can you tell me some stories over a drink?" <laughs> it is. That is a good opening scene. Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean should, to interrupt you. I thought. No, I that's to... great. Yeah, it, we should write that screenplay together. Yeah. Babe. <laughs> Fun. So uh, he began to tell me stories. Um, 
Another one, because I was an academic at the time and president of a theological school, I was uh, chairing an accreditation site visit for another school. And one of the members of my accreditation site visit team uh, was a librarian from a seminary. Uh, he was clergy. And I was t he, we had dinner, and he, he said, what are you working? I told him, he said, that's what I used to do. I said, what? Here he is. He's a librarian at a theological school, and he used to be an assassin for the CIA. And I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no. He said, there are some countries I can't go to. So I said, okay, you got to tell me stories. So, and I just kept taking notes because I always do lots of research. I went to all the places in the novel to get deep description, except the papal apartment because I didn't know the Pope, but I had two friends who knew the Pope very well. So, so I always like to do lots of detailed uh, research, but I'm not going to put all of it in the book. This is just sure. to understand my main character. Now, the other two were, um, one was an Israeli and the other was a Russian. And the Israeli was running a uh, tennis tournament in Dallas, Texas. And my older son, who's now a teaching tennis pro in Washington, D.C., played varsity tennis at university, uh, was playing in the tournament. And I'm just sitting here talking to this guy who's running the tournament. And I can tell he's got an accent. I said, where are you from? Israel. Oh, when'd you come here? He's telling me. So I said, well, because I knew everybody in Israel has to serve in the military. I said, so you had to serve in the, yeah. I said, which part? Mossad. Oh, yeah, you yeah. were in Mossad. And then I said, which unit? He said, the Kidon unit. Now, unless you've done a lot of research, you don't know, but that's assassins. And I said, okay, you got to tell me stories. And this guy opened up and told me unbelievable stories about what he had done. And he said, I had Arafat in my sights twice, but the order never came to take the shot. I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, here's that's global history being changed if he pulled the trigger. That's right. That's right. The Russian is a clergy now up in the Ural Mountains where I was lecturing and speaking. And he had been a Russian mafia chief and he had murdered lots of people. And now he's clergy, like my main character. So I I kept interviewing and interviewing and finding out the truth is when you're a real assassin, you're cold as ice. So that now, you are potentially is one of my questions. I was gonna ask you, did they have any common skill sets? Uh, or even character um, traits. Yeah, I would say that the main character trait was you couldn't tell they were assassins. Yeah, that was the main. They seemed so normal. And, you know, you think of you think, oh, an assassin boy must be a really dastardly mean kind of person. No, they're very calm, very composed. Uh, and and cold as ice. Do you remember the movie Carlos the Jackal? Yeah. Where Bruce Willis plays Carlos, and toward the end he's got to get close to I don't know, he's going to try to kill the vice president or something, and he befriends this guy, and he's in this guy's apartment because the guy's going to give him a pass to get where he's going, and he's gotten what he wants from the other guy, and he's bored by him. The other guy's sitting standing over there jabbering next to him, and Bruce Willis is eating Chinese food, watching TV, and he's got this 
you know, uh, he's got his chopsticks and he's eating away. And the guy just keeps jabbering. So Bruce Willis picks up his silencer and he goes thump, thump, and puts it back down, goes back to eating his Chinese food. Now, that's yeah. a real assassin. I was so, my main, so my main character was that, but because in the opening scene, which is only handled in flashbacks, where he killed his own wife by accident when he was trying to kill the Bedouin, and he's in, since then gone to theological school, and now he he's just, he can't be the way he was. Do you remember the yeah. movie The Quiet Man? The Quiet yeah. Man with John Wayne? John Wayne, yep. Killed, killed somebody Lawyer in the Harvard. ring? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it comes comes to UK and he, he can't he just can't box anymore. Yeah, he goes back to the family home in Ireland, to a homestead. That's in it. Ireland. That's it. And, and he, there's he, a he, vicar that recognizes him from an old newspaper. That's right. That's it. That's a lot like my main character because he can't kill anybody any anymore. He's had to change. Because one of so, my interest so my last question on the because you've answered some of them because you've told me what all their day jobs were. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you, did any of them display any vulnerabilities? Yes and no. I I think uh, I, I, I just go back to how normal all four of them, of course, I didn't meet the father of the philosophy professor, but they just all seemed so normal and um i if i'd been around them a, a lot longer i could have seen vulnerabilities probably but not on meeting them first impression no I, I they're spoke, just very normal people yeah well I, I spoke to a chap the other day called scott hoffman and his dad was a, a member of the chicago outfit in the 50s 60s and 70s and he grew up mm -hmm. in the outfit and one of the questions one of the things he told me was um and he, he, yeah, so one of the things he told me is they, they could be having a conversation with you now to say, could you excuse me one minute, walk out, shoot somebody and come back in and carry on the conversation. That's exactly right. Now you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to communicate, which was a surprise to me because I just think of them as bad people, as yeah. bad guys. And, you know, it is bad to kill somebody. There's just no question. I mean, this is really funny in one sense, because when I've done other interviews and they say, wait a minute, former CIA assassin becomes a minister in Maryville, Tennessee, which is where I live now. Is this autobiographical? <laughs> and, and, I, and I smile and pause and say, well, you know, all writing is autobiographical. And, and, and then I and I did have three years of Taekwondo in seminary for handling rough parishioners, you know, but uh, no, I have never killed anybody. I never worked for the CIA. But it is true that they could be talking to you right now, Dave, and then go out, yeah. excuse me, and then come back and they've killed somebody and then just go pick up the conversation where they were. Yeah, yeah something has to happen to them to change them which is what happened to my main character yeah but but it's a fascinating subject because people do not realize that your quiet next door neighbor or your extrovert extra neighbor who takes your bins out on a cold day for you because it's raining and windy they could have killed three people the night before exactly you know. and, so, and so it's 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 more nuanced than i mean i you know enjoy watching the john wick movies and it's, it's yeah, fine yeah. whatever but it's more nuanced than that.
And then John Wick has some vulnerabilities. I mean, there are, there are movies about assassins where they show it, they show it better. But I think I, I think I've captured how nuanced it is in Assassin's Manuscript. And people will just have to see for themselves. Most of the readers, well, the reviewers have said, yep, looks like you're and and many are surprised, you know. Oh, well, I think I think sometimes what people misunderstand is the these people going through their lives um, just end up in a set of circumstances where people realize they have a talent for something and it just develops from that. And they just end up always, say, passing a test or just always being in front of the right person. And before you know it, they're assassinating people. It's not like it's a planned career path. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of my characters, Marcello uh, Zanetti uh, in in Italy uh, is a is a history professor at University of Rome, and yeah. he just decided to get into it because he thought academia was a direct route to semi poverty, and he needed needed more money. And uh, yes. there's a scene where Adam and Rennie are together as they're being chased around Rome, uh, where she finally starts figuring out there's something more about this guy that I'm falling in love with. You got to tell me what, and and he starts to open up a little, but he just can't say all of it. And you can see his internal personal struggle trying to share with this person that he's beginning to care about, even though he killed her own fiance by accident. Do you know what? As you were saying that, there's a flip to that that just popped into my head. Yeah. The the equalizer with Denzel Washington, because mm -hmm. the film the. Unlike this, the flip of that in the sense that in the film, all you ever see is his killing skills. And the thing he has trouble communicating is his pain from losing his wife because he's a widow. Yes. And that you are you speaking of the newest one that's just yeah, yeah, been yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. With yes, I saw that. It's it's uh, it's brilliant the, the yeah. way it's put together. But that's exactly right. It is the pain. Uh, that is very hard for him to let go of. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I want to take you away from the book because I'm conscious of time and I just want to ask you some random things um, just, just to, you know, so people can learn a bit more about you. Aside from writing, what do you do well? Uh, far from... Uh, aside, aside from, from writing. writing yeah. yeah and what do I do? What, what do you do yeah. well? Well, I... <laughs> I speak a lot and I, people, you know, I, when I was in Dallas, our service was on the major ABC network yeah. to half a million people and all that. So I speak and lecture a lot and enjoy that. I play tennis. I'm a fairly keen tennis player uh, for my age, for sure. Um, I played in a national U S national tournament in my age group. Uh, oh, well done. A couple of years a couple of years ago in the 70s, you know, the for yeah, people in their 70s. That's yeah, good achievement. I have a, well, I have a funny story about it. So it's different from playing guys who are, are women who are there in their 50s or 30s. Our granddaughter is, you know, 13 and she can push me around and all that. But when you play people in their 70s, I mean, it's drop shots and it's touch. Yeah. Yeah. And so I go out there and I'm whacking away at the ball and this guy who the first match I play, he when we're warming up, he just doesn't look that much better. I just, you know, I find out he's a retired tennis teaching pro and all that. 
but he knew how to put the drop shots. And I had 95% first serves. I mean, I've been to Wimbledon several times and, you know, not to play, watch. And and so I'm really into tennis. And so I, I had 95% first serves, zero double faults, very few unforced errors, and he still beat me 6-1, 6 up. And I'm like, this is humbling, you know? There were 68 of us from all over the U.S., and so I, my second match was against a guy who's six foot four, a lefty. I won three games off of him. And I'm just like, this is so humbling, you know. And I asked him, do I even belong playing in this thing? And he said, well, yeah, your game is you have a nice game. You just need more match play at this level. He says, uh, he said, I've looked around. There are 68 of us here from around the U.S., um, you're better than five of them. And I go, so I'm number 63 <laughs> out of 68. And he said, yeah, but that's in the whole country. So that's not, that's, that's not good. too bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that, that, that's, that's a good statistic. That's so, good and statistic. I hike, I, you ask what else I hike in the mountains. We have the smoky mountains right here next to us. We look at them from our back porch. So we, I hike regularly, uh, you know, so, you know, my life's fairly limited. I, yeah. 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 Um, going off again on the deviations, what is it that makes you so interested in talking to people? Well, getting to know about people is interesting to me. Um, I, I will say that I've learned over my lifetime that I should listen more. <laughs> I, I end up talking too much when I'm trying to get to know people. But people are interesting. Everyone is different. Everyone is unique. And my research on the brain has helped me understand that when you say something to another person, you're not exactly sure how that's landing on that other person. And you actually have to say, how did that land on you? Yeah. You know, because you assume that you communicated in a certain way and it might have hurt their feelings. And they may not say anything to you. And then you don't understand why they're cool. You know, so yeah. it's important to try to get back from others what they're actually hearing from you. So, Again, this is going to be another random question because I just like them. Um, when you were a child or maybe a teenager, you can pick whichever one pops in your head. If you could sit with them now, what would they say about the life you've had? If I sat with a teenage version of myself, yeah, what would they say about the life you've about had? The life I've had. They would say, "I am totally surprised with all the things you've done," because I never imagined that I would, you know, pre speak at Princeton and Oxford and all these different places. I never imagined I'd be a president of a major academic institution. I never imagined that I would publish all these books. And uh, way to go. You you actually did way more than I imagined you would do, that I would do. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what my teenage version, because I was, I was not a big athletic stud. You know, I wasn't Mr. Popular in high school, middle school, junior high. Uh, I did get more involved in those kinds of things in college and university. Uh, but, you know, I was a, probably a little bit insecure. And, you know, I, I will say that 
there were people along the way who gave me permission or saw something in me. So I had potential. Uh, and Alex Haley was one who told me I should write a novel, the author of Roots, sitting in my office. And he said, hey, you know, uh, what have you written? And so I pulled one of the books off the shelf and he started thumbing. He said, you need to write a novel. I said, Alex, what makes you say that? He said, two things. One, you know how to write and you write really well and you know how to tell a story. And that's all a novel is. Why would I write a novel? What do you like? Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum. And he said, well, combine that with your knowledge of old Greek manuscripts and see what comes out. And the, the guy who is the physician who sat in my office said, we want you to lecture on the brain at a big medical conference. And I go, what? I don't know anything about the brain. I told my wife, she said, that's never stopped you before. And so I got took the challenge and, and read 50 books on cognitive neuroscience and just gave myself another PhD in the brain and went. And, and then it was such a success. I started getting invited to Cornell and all kinds of uh, academic institutions and doing grand rounds. So... I think I would say to my I would say to my older self if I were a teenager I'm glad you took the risk to try things and not worry how it was going to come out just go for it and writing a novel is taking a risk I guarantee yeah. you yeah no I, you I, yeah I, you I, I have yeah, yeah I've written a novel so it was, uh... so you know yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's it's very hard because you said something at the very beginning when you were talking about it being your baby and you have this big manuscript and someone says you got to cut it off and you're just like I don't think you're, you you realize what you're asking me to destroy because That's right. this, this is my heart and soul. I think every minute of this is great. And you do have to go back and, and like an assassin not think about it, just be ruthless, get the job done. Just do it. Yeah. Make it better than yeah. it was before. Make and, it better. And interestingly, I, I realized when I read through my very first manuscript, when I read through much later, just how much of it I didn't understand myself. So I had to ask, well, what was I trying to explain? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to sit back and read something. And, you, and I find reading something out loud. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, and speaking of that, uh, uh, this novel is now on Audible. Uh, assassin's manuscript and it's read by our younger son david carl who's an actor in new york oh, nice. and who's a trained actor and an expert on international accents so when you're reading when he's reading it you hear him do several different british accents in the chapter on the robbery of the codex sinaiticus from the british museum oh, you hear wow different varieties of British accents. And then he does Russian, he does Italian, he does Scottish, uh, he does um, uh, New Orleans Cajun, uh, you know, and all, all these different accents. Uh, and, and, and his training, and one of his colleagues from university is Rami Malek, who won the Oscar, you yeah. know. And Queen, so David did Queen, didn't he? Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and David it was in uh, George Clooney's The Tender Bar in a scene with Ben Affleck. Uh, he is in the final season of the uh, Netflix's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, Fantastic. And he's, he's been on the TV show Blue Bloods. And he did... Uh, One of my mum's favorite programs. Oh, uh, yeah. So your mum likes the Blue Bloods. That's great. Yeah, and loves it. 
Yeah, and then he had a one-man show called Gary Busey's One Man Hamlet. He does all of Hamlet as the crazy character Gary Buser, Busey, the actor. And he actually did it at the Fringe, uh, Edinburgh Fringe, and oh. it was a big success. Uh, he's done, uh, and he won the New York Fringe Festival solo show and big rave reviews in the New York Times. And then the other one-man show he does is called Trump Lear. So think about Trump and King Lear together. And it is outrageous. It is so funny. And he also did that at, Ed, at the Edinburgh uh, Festival Fringe. Uh, and he's done it all over the country. So it, just imagine somebody with those skills. Yeah, he's yeah. also done narrations of James Patterson's novel novels. Imagine someone with those training, acting training skills to do this international espionage novel called Assassin's Manuscript. He literally makes it a better story than I wrote. It's perfect, though, isn't <laughs> it? That, that is it's, perfect. It's, it's the first and maybe only father-son author-narrator collaboration in at least the U.S. that I know of. That, that's, a, that's a legacy yeah. in itself. If you go on Amazon, Dave, and just click on where my book is and go to the audiobooks, and, and there's a five-minute free sample. Mm -hmm. Just listen to him describe, you know, do one of the chapters. It's a riot. That's brilliant. Right. Last question. Last okay. question. And then I'll let you go. And this is going to have to completely engage with the imagination, which I imagine is not going to be difficult for you. If you, <laughs> if you could go to any place in history, any time, where would you go? What car would you be driving? And what would, what music would you listen to? Oh, what would I be driving and what yeah. music would I? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would be in Florence, Italy, in the time of the Medicis and the, you know, the time of the great artists. Yeah. Yep. And and I would drive some kind of convertible, uh, Fiat or whatever. Yep. And I'd have uh, Mozart on. Nice. That's perfect. Thank you very much for your time. I've genuinely really appreciated it. Keep talking to you. It's been brilliant. It's been fun to talk to you. Thank you.